Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. As the COVID-19 pandemic surges ahead, researchers are desperately seeking evidence to support a range of potential disease-modifying treatments. On this episode, Professor Tony Gordon from Imperial Hospitals in London joins me to discuss one such potential therapy, convalescent serum. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Tony, convalescent serum has been suggested as a potential therapy. Can you tell us a bit about how it might work? Convalescent plasma is actually a very old therapy uh, that we're trying to evaluate in a very new disease. Uh, just to give you some historic perspective, uh, convalescent plasma was first suggested over 100 years ago um, and was used in the uh, Spanish flu uh, in 1918. And it uses the idea that uh, taking antibodies from patients who've recovered uh, from the disease, you can uh, transfuse those into patients who are still fighting the, the disease. And these antibodies essentially uh, neutralize the virus, prevent it entering the cells and causing then the further damage. So, um, an old therapy to tackle a new disease. Tony, has it been shown to be effective in other infectious diseases? Yeah, it's, um, as I pointed out, been used for a number of uh, different uh, viral uh, conditions uh, in the last hundred years. I think the evidence is sort of always encouraging um, and but it, you know, it varies from infection to infection and therefore needs to be uh, tested. And specifically with the coronaviruses, it has been suggested um, there was some studies uh, in the SARS outbreak and the MERS coronavirus. And some preliminary studies have started looking at it in COVID-19. But there's still uh, at this moment in time, no definitive evidence uh, around both its effectiveness uh, and its safety. What are the practical steps involved in turning convalescent serum into a widely applicable therapy? Yeah, um, so obviously the plasma uh, needs to be collected from uh, donors. So these will be uh, patients who've had uh, the virus, who've generated antibodies, um, and then these uh, antibodies uh, contained within the plasma and that can be collected by a process of apheresis. Um, I think it's important to note that uh, it's felt in order to be uh, both most effective and also safe, that you need high teters of uh, neutralizing antibodies. So in the case of COVID-19 and what we're doing in the UK with the plasma collection is uh, we have to wait till uh, a patient has recovered for uh, 28 days and then at that stage when they hopefully have uh, developed uh, their neutralizing antibodies they're also tested and making sure the teeters uh, reach a certain level uh, this is as i mentioned is to ensure it is both uh, most effective but also there has been reports um, of a potential um, issue with convalescent plasma that of uh, antibody dependent enhancement where if you have uh, Weaker antibodies, non-neutralizing antibodies, these uh, can actually uh, potentially make uh, the illness worse. So this is why it's important to get uh, the 
the plasma from patients late um, and also with the um, highest uh, levels of antibody details. Tony, you mentioned there that non-neutralizing antibodies may be associated with harm. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, this is a uh, theoretical risk. We haven't uh, seen it yet in COVID-19, but people are always concerned that if the antibodies actually uh, are not neutralizing, they can uh, actually make the situation worse, uh, produce a more severe illness. Uh, this has been described in uh, dengue uh, as a, a potential uh, risk. And so I think that's one of the reasons uh, why it's important to evaluate uh, this therapy in random mice controlled trials so that we um, properly assess its safety before it's rolled out at a large scale. You mentioned that some preliminary studies have been performed. What have they shown so far? Yeah, the, there's been um, sort of both case series and um, a few small random mice controlled trials. Um, Actually, the most recent uh, sort of publication has come from a large uh, study uh, in the United States, actually studying many thousands of patients. There was no control arm, so uh, we can't uh, look at effectiveness. But importantly, this has sort of demonstrated that it would appear uh, that it is safe. So these were 5,000 patients treated with convalescent plasma. They were followed up for serious adverse events um, only for four hours after the uh, transfusion. And there was a very uh, low rate of SAEs. These uh, adverse events may be those that you would expect um, that can occur with any sort of uh, blood product, uh, particularly plasma transfusion. So a transfusion related acute lung injury and uh, transfusion associated uh, cardiac overload. So very low rates, but they only followed the patients for a few hours afterwards. And I think it's important to assess safety over a little bit uh, longer. There certainly didn't appear to be any uh, issues of the antibody dependent enhancement we've mentioned. There have been a, uh, there was one uh, randomized control trial uh, published uh, in JAMA uh, within the last month that um, showed encouraging signs. Unfortunately, um, for the trial, um, it was underpowered. It only recruited just over 100 patients compared to the planned 200. The disease had already been uh, contained uh, in China, so they weren't able to complete the study. There was no statistical significant uh, difference between the groups, but there was um, sort of numerically things seemed to improve uh, with the plasma. So it's encouraging that this uh, may be a useful therapy. But I think this is exactly why we need uh, larger RCTs to provide the definitive evidence. Now, to that end, I understand REMAP-CAP has a convalescent serum arm. Yeah, so REMAP-CAP being an international trial uh, is an excellent platform in which to investigate this intervention. So we've actually already started uh, in the UK, uh, the National Blood Transfusion Service, NHSBT, have been uh, collecting plasma from as soon as the virus um, started to appear, have been setting themselves up to collect um, plasma. So they've been doing that uh, now and have many hundreds of uh, donor units available. And we started um, in early May uh, recruiting uh, to this uh, study, rolling it out to more centres. And to date, we have 70 patients uh, randomised in the UK to convalescent plasma. Clearly, the number of cases we've had in the UK are beginning to uh, drop now, so 
um, we're having fewer recruits each day. And I think this is one of the advantages of the international platform is that if the disease is also um, popping up elsewhere, other countries hopefully will um, be able to produce their own plasma and investigate it within REMAPCAP so we can get the larger numbers and the definitive evidence we need uh, to evaluate the therapy properly. Now, as we record this podcast, Tony, approximately 9 million patients have been infected globally so far. Is it possible for this type of therapy to be produced at a scale required to have an influence over the pandemic? And it is a um, major effort. Um, it needs a sort of uh, blood transfusion service. Um, in the UK, it's on a national basis, uh, but it does need to be uh, geared up. This is a major undertaking uh, to, first of all, screen um, the potential donors, making sure, as I mentioned, things like antibodies uh, levels are high, um, but obviously all the blood products need to be checked for uh, sort of standard um, safety and uh, infection so we don't pass on any other infections. Um, also, the patients need to be uh, well. Um, it is similar to a blood uh, donation, the apheresis technique, slightly more involved. So patients have to have properly recovered uh, from their illness um, fr from the COVID-19. In general, uh, we found uh, that the uh, most sort of best donors in a way have been, um, seem to be middle-aged men, um, perhaps also that group that have um, been affected uh, more severely by the illness have the highest levels. And so that's it, screening these uh, patients, uh, getting uh, them to donate. And importantly, what can be happening is once you've identified good donors, they can donate more than once. Um, and so that they can potentially um, produce many units uh, over time that can be produced. But then having that plasma stored and available to pass throughout the whole country is, again, is a major effort. And this is why it's um, not a small undertaking, but um, certainly with the right investment, the blood transfusion services are able to scale it up. But it does take time. Blood services will, you know, you need to have the patients first become ill and then a large enough donor pool. So it takes a bit of time to get set up. But that's what we're doing in the UK is using this time now to evaluate it. And if we were to have a second surge and we know it's effective, then hopefully by that time we will have uh, enough plasma to be able to use at a national level. For clinicians at the bedside, what's involved in administering the therapy? The um, plasma, convalescent plasma is the same essentially as giving fresh frozen uh, plasma, which we would normally give for other indications. In the uh, intensive care unit, uh, that's fairly straightforward. Our patients are, all, are well monitored all the time um, anyway. For ward-based patients, uh, that involves doing, I think, the normal observations you would normally give around giving fresh frozen plasma. So patients need to be checked. And again, think about how they would roll this out. Uh, we're using our sort of normal transfusion practices and uh, that we have pra transfusion practitioners in the UK and they are um, helping uh, with the whole uh, process. Tony, are there any potential advantages to convalescent plasma over drug therapies? Uh, one of the um, potential or, or Actually, maybe it's one of the problems with um, drugs uh, treatments is drug supply and particularly 
moving drugs um, internationally. One of the advantages of plasma is you can keep on making more at a national level. So uh, countries, once they've got a system set up, they can produce plasma and carry on treating uh, the patients. And that's actually quite interesting. A number of uh, investigators in Remat Cap who've been unfortunate enough to have uh, the illness have been able to donate their own uh, plasma uh, for use in the trial. So showing how investigators really got involved in this disease. We've had uh, Remat Cap investigators uh, showing pictures of themselves donating uh, their own uh, blood that is used as an intervention in the trial. So total dedication uh, to research, uh, which is a nice little story, I think. Tony, thanks for joining us on the podcast and all the best with Remap Cap. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, visit our website at oslocommunity.com.